Thank you so much. Wow. Thank you guys for inviting us. Thank you for being so kind to us. We've met so many of you already and we just feel like we're amongst family. So it's an absolute joy to be with you. Um, Julian and I have two incredible kids, Ezekiel, who's three, and Evangeline, who is 20 months, and um, I'm really missing them. So I do apologize if I come up to your kids and talk to them. I'm not just a scary stranger. I just am really missing my kids, so it'll be lovely to meet some of yours and say hi to them, and then that'll make me feel just that bit better. Um, So, okay. Um, If you've ever heard me speak before, you'll know that I don't behave myself and don't expect you to either. Um, uh, We didn't come here for information, did we, this weekend? (laughs) Um, If you've ever heard teachers or preachers that are conveying information alone, you kind of leave the room feeling something, something was missing, something fell short because no, no preacher, no teacher has been anointed to convey information. We've been anointed to lead people into an encounter with Jesus. And so I hope that you're ready to encounter Jesus this morning. This might not be the most eloquent preach you've ever heard. I imagine it won't be. But I believe that Jesus is present in this room and he wants to intensify his presence so that each and every one of us will meet with him afresh this morning, so that our hearts will be transformed, so that something will happen this morning that we won't be able to shake off or forget because he's just that kind and just that good. And so I always say to people when I'm speaking, please go into receive mode. And if that means that you need to switch off listening to me because Holy Spirit is speaking to you, then feel free free to do that. He's a much better preacher than I am anyway. If you receive best, if you're lying down, lie down. If you receive best by running around, run around. Seriously, I'm, I'm giving you full permission here. I don't get easily distracted, but I would hate for people to feel like you need to be polite as you listen to me and miss something of what God is doing with you in order to be polite towards me. Feel free not to be polite. Feel free to engage with him and encounter him. I want to tell you, you're living for far too little because God has seen you, he has called you, and he has put you on this planet, not just to live a nice, neat and tidy life, but to live a life that transforms everything and everybody around you so that the nations will hear his name and give him glory. And that's what you're alive for. And so I hope this weekend that God will catch us all up into more of his purposes for us. I often say to people, if the life you're living makes sense to you right now, then there's, you've missed something of the call of God for you because it's not meant to make sense. We sing this song. You can put the recording back on, by the way, if you want. We sing this song. He left the 99 to go after the one as if it makes sense. It doesn't. That's the point of that parable. When Jesus said, how many of you would leave the 99 for the one? The answer was none of us. That was the point. He was actually referencing a prophetic word in Ezekiel 34 where God speaks to the nation of Israel and says, you shepherds, you who have not bound up the brokenhearted, you who have not gone after the strays, I myself will go after that which you have lost. And so the point when Jesus said, 
Which of you would leave the 99? The point was the religious guys were saying, none of us, that doesn't make sense. The maths doesn't add up. And Jesus was saying, that's the point. Kingdom maths doesn't add up. He didn't choose you because you're wonderful. He didn't choose you because you're eloquent. He didn't choose you because you're super clever or so amazing that he thought, oh my gosh, how could I do anything but choose this person? No, he chose each and every one of us because he's incredibly kind and incredibly gracious. And we're the one. And his maths doesn't add up. And aren't you grateful for that? And so I believe God wants to do something with us to shake us up a little bit, to make us aware of kingdom maths. I'm going to go out on a limb just for a second because I can't get this image out of my head. It's probably because I've had just that bit too much caffeine this morning. So forgive me. But anyway, I'm just going to go for it. Because don't you know that God is attracted to risk because he loves faith, not performance? Hebrews 11 says it's faith that pleases him. It's not perfection that pleases him. And so you and I, we can take risks in God and we can do silly things like tell people about an image that we've got in our minds and just go for it because we know that in those moments where we're saying, Jesus, we believe that you speak to us and it's worth us taking the risk even if we fall flat on our faces, we know in that moment that he is beaming over us because he's attracted to faith, not performance. And so I've got this funny image in my head I just saw in worship Someone, I think you were putting an earring in, but it might not have been an earring, but you dropped it as you were getting ready. When you bent down to pick it up, you banged your head on a table or a desk. Now, this might have happened today. It might have happened in the last week. If it was five years ago, please don't go for it. We we really don't need to bend stuff to make it work, but I just wanted to go for it because it's in my head and it's distracting me. Does that make sense to anybody? If it does, I promise I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to say anything nasty. God doesn't see your sin because the Bible says he chooses to forget our sins. So that's not what we're going to prophesy, but I believe God wants to bless you if you are in this room. So does that make sense to anyone? You were getting ready. As you were getting ready, you dropped something. I think it was an earring, but it might not have been. When you went to pick it up, you hit your head. Too much caffeine, too much caffeine. Okay, makes sense to someone. Brilliant. Thank you so much for putting up your hand. You're incredibly, incredibly kind. Do you mind just standing up for a minute because I want to prophesy over you? Okay. Did you drop anything when you banged your head? No. No. Okay, that's fine. But you know what? Because you're so brave, can I just prophesy over you anyway? Does it make sense? Just one second before I do that. Does that make sense to anybody else in this room? Okay. There is, sorry, I can't see. Okay. Does that really make sense? What I've just described. Awesome. Okay. The the lady who just stood up just a second ago, please, will you find me afterwards? Because I want to pray and prophesy over you because you're so kind and brave to stand up. Can I ask your name? Kit. Okay, brilliant. Kit, I promise I'm not going to embarrass you. But I believe that God showed me that picture because he wanted to bless you this morning. He wanted to show you that he sees you and he knows you. And I believe that there's been something in your 
journey over the last few months where there's been some loss and some robbery, whether it's been of confidence, whether it's been of hopes and dreams and promises. And I feel like you've almost gone after to restore things and it's felt like a knock on the head. That's why I felt like I saw that whole scenario playing out. Felt like God was saying to me, this thing that's happened is a picture of the journey that this person has been walking through, that there's been loss and there's been pain. And I felt like God wanted to pick you out today to say, he's not blind. He sees you. He's not deaf. He hears you. And he's changing things in your life. Even this day, today, right now is a turning point moment for you. I feel like God is going to bring some breakthrough and some changes for you where you feel like you had to recover things in pain. God is going to give you things in grace where you will be astonished at the turnaround that comes and the things he restores. And even now, I feel like he's speaking to your heart. He is pouring courage into you because I want to tell you Holy Spirit loves you. He wants to be a friend to you. He wants to be good to you. He does not come after you to make you feel bad or make you feel scared or to try to make you to do religious things, but he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And he promises in this moment, in public, in front of everyone, that he is going to do you good. He is out to bless you. He is out to show his kindness to you. And so in Jesus' name, Kit, right now, I just speak the blessing of the Father over you. I speak that there will be such moments of tenderness and intimacy with the Father that you will be overwhelmed at the kindness of God in your life. And in the name of Jesus, I come against the lies of the enemy and the plans that he's put in place and the things he's done to try to rob you and to steal your confidence in this last season. And I say, stop now in the name of Jesus, this far and no further in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you. Thank you for standing. Okay, let's go to Esther. I have no idea what time it is. Sorry, I'm not paying attention at all. Okay. Right. I don't know if you've read the book of Esther, but it is an amazing, amazing book. I love this book. It never once mentions God, and yet his fingerprints are all over the book. And I'm just going to tell you the story because we're going to cover the whole book, really. Um, So I'm going to tell you the story rather than read all the chapters, and then we'll get into a few nuggets that I believe the enemy wishes that none of us knew. And so we're going to use the story of Esther as a bit of a springboard. The story of Esther starts with a king on his throne, And this is the king of Persia. He was the most powerful man on the planet at the time of this story. This is historical fact, not fiction, despite how crazy the story becomes. King Ahasuerus, the king who was most powerful in the planet, he decided that he wanted to show off. He wanted to show everyone just how glorious he was. So he threw a party to just show off. And for six months, we're told that the wine was flowing and there was food in abundance. And he opened up the palace doors to all the officials and all the governors. And they came for six months. Can you imagine this? If America did this today, six month long party where there's a government shutdown is because of a party. And they all drank and they all ate and they had all kinds of pleasures available to them for six months. At the end of that six months, Lazarus decided that he'd actually show off to the entire public. And so the palace doors were open to everybody in the entire empire and everybody could come and eat and drink to their heart's content. At the end of that party, he decided as his ultimate act of showing off and glory, he would call his wife Vashti 
Kathy to come and parade with her crown on. Many commentators say that probably means that she was meant to have nothing else on, to come and parade with her crown on in front of all the drunken governors and officials. Unsurprisingly, Vashti decided that that wasn't something that she really wanted to do that day. And so she said no. Unthinkable in that day that someone would say no to a king, publicly say no to a king, much less a woman. And so this is where the problem in the story begins. And the king gathers his officials and they say, what can we do with the problem of Vashti? Because Vashti has humiliated the king. Not only has she said no to a king, but now every woman in the empire will believe that it's okay for wives to say no no to their husbands, and clearly no one can live in a society like that. (laughs) And so they come up with this plan. Vashti must be thrown out of the palace, and maybe they should find a new queen, maybe someone who'll listen, who'll pay attention, who'll be obedient. And so they throw this empire-wide beauty pageant, even though we really sanitize it, and we'll get there in a minute, but this beauty pageant where they come and forcibly remove all of the beautiful virgins from their homes, bring them into the palace so that they can be trained for one night with the king. And yes, that is exactly how it sounds. It was a night with the king, and the king would then decide which virgin he was most pleased with and that woman would become queen. This is when Esther enters the story. She was a Jew, she was an orphan and she was raised by her cousin Mordecai. And Esther was beautiful and a virgin. And so she gets forcibly removed from her home. But Mordecai says to her just before she goes, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. Don't tell them your background because they'll look down on you because being a Jew in that society was being the lowest of the low. Being an orphan made her even lower than that and being a woman, well, that was of no no value at all. And so Esther gets brought into the palace and she gets through her training and she wins favor with everybody, including the king. And in fact, Esther becomes the new queen of Persia. At this point, uh, a man enters the story, a man by the name of Haman, who was an official of the king, and he hated the Jews. And he concocts a plan, and he gets the king to sign off on this plan in order to destroy the Jewish people. And Mordecai hears about this plan, and he goes to Queen Esther, and he says to Esther, you've got to do something about this. You have to save your people, because we're all going to be annihilated because of this plan. And Esther says to Mordecai, are you kidding me? I can't do that. Don't you know who I am? I'm a nothing and a nobody. You see this crown, but we all know it means nothing. Don't you remember Vashti? I can't do anything of my own accord. I can't go to the presence of the king. He hasn't called me for a month, so he's not interested in me right now. And you don't go to the king because if he doesn't want to see you, the penalty is death. Mordecai starts speaking to her and we're going to look at some of his words and he starts speaking courage into her heart and he says to her, Esther, you've got to do this. What if this is the very purpose that you were made for? What if God brought you into the kingdom for this very thing? And eventually he speaks so much courage into her heart that she thinks, okay, maybe let's do this. So they all fast and pray for three days. And after three days of praying and fasting, she walks down a corridor towards the throne room and you better believe her heart was beating so, so wildly that it was about to escape her chest and she gets into the throne room and miracle of miracles, this evil king extends grace and mercy to her and says, Esther, what can I do for you? And Esther says, I wanna invite you to a party. And he says, okay. And so the next day, the king and Haman, who was also invited, come to a party. 
And in that evening, the king says again, Esther, what can I do for you? And she says, I want to invite you to another party with Haman. So the next night, Haman and the king come to another party. And again, the king says to her, Esther, seriously, what can I do for you? And she exposes the plot that Haman had concocted. And she pleads for the life of herself and her people. And the king is and he just is outraged by what Haman has done and he orders Haman to be put to death. The Jews are spared and literally the history of a nation is changed because of one woman who was the least, who was nothing, who was a nobody. It's an unbelievable story. And I believe this story is a powerful one for us to understand what it is that God is inviting his church into. And so, yeah, if you do like titles, if you do like to write notes, this is what the enemy wishes you didn't know. Number one, you're more than the world's estimations. You were created for greatness. See, The enemy loves to make us feel like we're less than we are. Because if he can make us feel like we're less than we are, then he can rob us of the courage for our destiny. He loves to make us feel this, uh, particularly in the spiritual realm. He loves to make us feel that becoming a Christian is just about going through a big giant washing machine where we're really the same person, but we come out just a little bit cleaner on the other side. He loves to make us feel like Jesus' blood on the cross, all it did was... uh, Uh, work like a vanished stain remover on our stains and he just sprinkled it and wow our stains are removed but we're the very same person because if he can make us believe that then he can make us believe that it's possible to become dirty again but the enemy is a liar. The cross and resurrection of Jesus was not a giant washing machine. It didn't leave you the same person. The Bible in 2 Corinthians 5, 5 tells us that the old has gone and the new has come. You are a brand new creation. If anyone in this room is in Christ, you are no longer the same person that you were before you became a Christian. In fact, every substance of your being, every cell, every particle in your body has been transformed. You may not be able to see it with your physical eyes, But I want to tell you, you are a completely different substance now than you were the day before you became a Christian. Because the blood and the resurrection, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus has the power to totally transform our DNA. And it does do that. It completely changes us. The old goes, the new comes in. You are not just a cleaner version of your old self. You are a brand new creation. Every substance of your being has been changed. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5 says that Jesus who knew no sin became the very substance of sin so that you and I would become the very substance of righteousness in Christ. Every cell of your being, if you are alive in Jesus, is the very substance of righteousness. And the enemy doesn't want us to understand this because he wants us to keep looking back at the old self as if that is who we now are so that we can keep struggling with the old self and so that we can keep fighting through the things of the old self and so that we can form accountability groups around our sinful nature because that's who we believe we are. And so we can all commiserate with one another about the sins that we did that week. And we can pray about the sins and hopefully we'll make each other feel enough shame around those sins so that we'll be afraid enough the following week not to commit those sins again. And then we'll all get together the next week for the accountability group and we'll ask each 
other, oh, did you do that thing? And the ones of us that have been shamed and afraid enough not to do the sin suddenly feel slightly smug because we were better this week. And we look down on those now who are doubly ashamed because they fell again. Sound familiar? And we wonder why we cannot overcome sin cycles. And we wonder why our time is wasted again and again. And we wonder, is this all Christianity was about making me feel bad about the rubbish that I do? The answer is no. But the enemy loves to make Christians do things that are a complete and utter waste of time while we think we're being spiritual. I want to tell you, accountability groups about sin are a waste of time. I've been there, I've done that, I've led them. They don't have the power to transform because they're focusing on the wrong thing because the thing that you focus on is the thing you become like. Psychologists tell us, tells, tell us today that our behavior is not primarily driven by our desires, it's primarily driven by our understanding of our identity. You behave like that which you believe you are. And so the enemy wants you to believe that you're still the old person. You've just had vanish stain remover put on you. But he's a liar. You're not the old person. In fact, everything about your nature has now been changed so that you are the substance of the righteousness of God, which means it is more natural for you not to sin than to sin if we only understand who we now really are. It's about changing our understanding. It's about coming into agreement with what heaven is saying over us, not what the enemy is saying. So that as churches, we now can build accountability groups, not around our sin, but around our destiny. So that after this week, when you hear some prophetic words released over people, you can bring them into your accountability group so that you can keep saying, what have you done with the amazing prophetic words of greatness that God has put over you? Because I wanna tell you in Ephesians 4, where the Bible tells us to speak the truth and love to one another. It's not an encouragement for us to criticize one another and then go, but I was speaking the truth in love. (laughs) But the truth is not an idea. He's a person and he lives inside of you and me. And so when we come to speak the truth in love to one another, we are speaking Christ-likeness into one another. We're saying, I see Jesus in you and you look like him. We're building accountability groups where we're calling out the gold of Jesus from one another. But the enemy doesn't want us to know that. But you are more than the world's estimations. You were made for greatness. You are better than you've ever believed because you are not the old self, just a cleaner version. You are a brand new self. And what I love about this picture where Mordecai starts to speak to Esther is that Mordecai is a picture of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so many Christians today struggle with relationship with the Holy Spirit because the church has historically painted a picture of the Holy Spirit that is so far removed from who He is, but it means that we're slightly scared of what the Holy Spirit might say to us because we made it sound like the Holy Spirit is the policeman of heaven, like He's running around after Christians, telling us of our sin. And we say to each other, don't we, you know, I was at work and I was gossiping with my friends and then the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin and then I felt really bad and then I stopped gossiping. And what we do is we reduce his role in our lives to like the quality control of heaven where he makes you feel rubbish and then you feel bad enough. It kind of mirrors the accountability groups that we set up and the Holy Spirit is the head honcho of that group. That's not what he's like. 
We're not reading our Bibles properly and we're allowing the devil to come and speak lies about the Holy Spirit because he knows that if we understand who the Spirit is and if he knows that if we start listening to the Spirit, Spirit's word, we will be transformed to do all kinds of impossible things. Because John 16 tells us that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the unbeliever of their sin. His role towards the unbeliever is to convict them of sin so that they will be led to repentance. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the believer of their sin. In fact, Galatians 4, Romans 8 tells us something very different, which is the Holy Spirit's role in the believer's life is not to make us aware of our sinfulness, but is to make us aware of our sonship. It's to make us aware of the affirmation of Father God all over us. It's to speak courage and destiny over us. Psalms tells us that the thoughts of God towards us or more than the sand on the seashore every second of every day of your life God is speaking words of affirmation words of destiny words of greatness over you who are you tuning in to listen because I wonder sometimes if we're really hearing God because if we hear what he is saying like Mordecai spoke to Esther courage will rise up in our lives in our hearts to do the unthinkable to do the impossible, to do the audacious, to see his kingdom come on the earth. And you know, the beautiful thing about the words of the spirit is that they're not wishful thinking. He's not like, cross my fingers, hope, hope for the best. Yes, you're really great. That's not how it works. See, we see in the gospels where Jesus walked and Jesus spoke healing to people. He never prayed for healing. He declared healing because his words contained the very power in themselves to do that which he pronounced. So he says to the blind man, see, and the eyes are opened. He says to the lame man, walk, and power is released even as he speaks the word for the man to get up and walk. It's why Peter, who'd been following Jesus all those years, sees him walking on waves and he says to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you and I will. Because he understood that when Jesus speaks, power is released in the very words to do that which they proclaim. And so Jesus says, come. And Peter gets up out of the boat and he starts walking. And it's interesting, it's only when he hears the sound of the wind and waves over the sound of Jesus' words that he begins to sink. What words are you listening to? You know, when Jesus speaks to the woman caught in adultery, where was the man, by the way? But anyway, that's a different story. When he speaks to the woman caught in adultery and he says to her, go and sin no more. So many see that as if it was like this last minute insult. Don't think you've got away with this free though, even though you didn't get stoned. No. When Jesus says to her, go and sin no more, it was the ultimate act of kindness because in that moment, his power is released so that she can go and sin no more. It's a word of freedom and empowerment. It's a word of grace. I wanna tell you when the Holy Spirit is speaking the words of God over your life, words of affirmation and sonship and greatness and destiny. It's not wishful thinking. When you hear prophetic words and you know your heart is pounding and you know this is God, it's not like God is saying, I hope you'll be good enough to do this. He's saying, I am releasing power in this moment for you to do this. Because what God says over us isn't wishful thinking. You're better than you've ever believed. You're more than the world's estimations. Number two, you're not outnumbered. 
You know, the enemy loves to make us feel like we're outnumbered. He loves to make us feel like we're the only person in the world experiencing that thing that we're experiencing. You know, when Esther was walking down that corridor to the throne room, you better believe that every demon in that place was telling her, turn around, turn around. You're one woman, turn around. You are so outnumbered, turn around. Any of you know that feeling when you're doing something slightly crazy for God and suddenly all these thoughts start popping into your head? What am I doing? This was such a stupid idea. What on earth did I think that I could do this? Turn around, turn around. You're way outnumbered. The enemy loves to make us feel like we're backed into a corner, but the enemy is a liar. Let's just do some simple maths together for a second, shall we? I'm not the best at maths, but even I can do this. The Bible says when the enemy fell, he took one third of the angels of heaven with him. One third. That means if you discount God the Father, Son, and Spirit, which I'm sure we'll all agree are a majority in and of themselves. But anyway, let's just just put God to one side, shall we? The enemy is still outnumbered two to one because there are two angels in heaven for every demon of hell, right? You're with my maths here so far, right? So when the enemy tells you you are outnumbered, when the enemy tells you you're backed into a corner, when you're walking down that corridor towards a throne room and the enemy is saying, turn around, this was a bad idea, he's a liar because he's right. It's not a fair fight, but not for you, for him. He's the one who is outnumbered. He's the one who is backed into a corner. He is the one who is always on the back foot because even before you count God, he's outnumbered. And so in that moment, Esther is walking down and the enemy is saying, turn around, turn around. This is a bad idea. Don't do this because the enemy wanted to see the Jews annihilated because he knew the promises of God for that people. But you know what? I feel like the enemy is playing spiritual chicken with you and I all of the time. Once we've heard the promises of God, once we know what we're meant to be doing and we're walking in a direction, the enemy loves to come at us head on because he's betting that you and I will move. You know, spiritual warfare isn't about running around to the high places and pulling things down. That's not what the Bible teaches about spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is found in Ephesians 6 and the prominent word in spiritual warfare is stand. Stand, stand your ground, keep standing. Because you know what? Graham Cook is a great prophetic teacher. He says this. The enemy doesn't have the Holy Spirit, but Christians do. And the Bible tells us in Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit, part of the fruit of the Spirit is patience, which means that the believer has more patience than the enemy, which means when the enemy is playing a game of spiritual chicken with you, you with the Holy Spirit alive in you, if you just stand your ground, you will out patience the enemy, and you won't have to do spiritual warfare, which looks like running around and getting all crazy, but it just looks like saying, I know what God said to me and I will stand my ground and I will not give way because eventually you will outpatience him and you'll be able to simply step into the promises of God for your life. I want to tell you, stand your ground. KXC, stand your ground. You have heard the promises of God. He has spoken over you your identity. He has spoken over you your destiny. Stand your ground. Do not give way. Do not allow the enemy to keep telling you to turn around. Do not change your position because he knows the words of God over your life and he's trying to scare you to turn around. Don't turn around. Stand your ground. You know, one of my absolute favorite verses 
in the Bible is found in Genesis 32, where there's this incredible story of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older brother, Jacob was the younger, and he was a piece of work. But God really loved Jacob, and he chose him to do amazing things. And Jacob stole from Esau, who was the big hairy brother who could have beaten him. And so Jacob had to run away. But eventually, after many years, God speaks to Jacob and he says, I want you to go back to the land of your forefathers because I want to do you good. And so Jacob starts journeying with his wife, with his wives, with his children, with all that he has towards his homeland. And he's told at one point, your brother Esau is coming to meet you with 400 men. Bad moment. And so what he does is he splits up the camp and he prays all night and eventually he comes to this moment with God and he says to him, God, I'm afraid because my brother Esau is coming and I fear him. But you said, I will surely do you good. And so they keep walking towards his homeland. And it's an amazing story of relational restoration. And a while ago, I was moaning about different things to Jesus and saying to him, no, you said this and it didn't happen and blah, 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 blah. And throwing myself an absolute pity party. And he said to me, your sentence is the wrong way round. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he showed me how I was saying to him, promise, but problem. Constantly, that was my prayer. You said this, but this. You said we should do this, but we have no finance for this. You said this, you said go for healing, but our friend has just died. You said this, right? He said, your sentence is the wrong way round. You should be saying problem, but promise. Problem, but promise. Problem, but promise. Because what has the final word in how you see life? What has the final word in how you're moving forward? I wanna tell you, stick to your guns. Stand your ground. Do not move aside to the left or to the right. Because when he said to you, he is faithful to fulfill all that he has said. You are now not outnumbered. You are not backed into a corner. Number four, let's move on. We're almost there. The best context for breakthrough is feasting and joy. You know what the difference between Vashti and Esther were? Vashti didn't know the king's love language. (laughs) Esther and Vashti did very similar things because they defied the custom of the day. But what Esther did was she understood feasting for the king. And so she kept inviting him to the context of feasting in order to bring breakthrough. And there's something for us to understand in the spiritual life about feasting and joy for breakthrough. Because, and forgive me right now, if you are an intercessor in this church, I love you. I believe in the power of prayer. I love intercessors, but, okay, I'm just gonna say, but there has come a culture of intercession in many churches where intercessors use that as a badge of intensity. And I think we've all met people like this. I well, I'll just tell you, and you can tell me if you've met people like this, where you meet someone and, oh, what do you do? I'm an intercessor. Intensity volume has just jumped. <laughs> like, I just don't know what just happened. And they tell you how much time they pray with weeping and travail before the Lord. And they tell you, oh, do you know how dark the days are? Yeah. 
Again, the enemy loves to distract us with doing spiritual things that won't have power to bring transformation. And I believe this is happening in the culture around intercession because seriousness does not equal breakthrough. Intensity does not equal breakthrough. Depression does not equal breakthrough. If you spend hours and hours on your face before God, weeping under the burden of the problem that you're praying about, please stop. I mean it, stop. Because breakthrough comes where people are in faith and full of joy to see the breakthrough of God in those moments. It's not depression and intensity that leads to breakthrough. Do you know how I know this? It's because in the book of Nehemiah, it says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And God knows in a battle, you need strength. And there's this lie that's crept into the church where joy is frivolous, where you're allowed to cry in a meeting, but laughing, well, that's just rude. It's a lie of the enemy because he knows joy equals strength. And I wanna tell you, some of you have been in a battle and you've not known what to do. You feel like you're being hammered on all sides and you feel like your Christianity is anemic. And I wanna ask you this, where is your joy? Because joy equals strength. The best context for breakthrough is feasting and joy. Psalm 23 says, in the presence of my enemies, he prepares a table for me. Not after he's defeated the enemy. No, in the presence of the enemy, in the midst of the battle at its blackest moment, he says, come and sit down and eat. Because in the presence of your enemies, he prepares a table. And a friend of mine says, You get to invite the guests. Fear, you're uninvited. Off you go. Shame, you're uninvited. Off you go. It's your table with Jesus. You get to invite the guests. But he prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemy. Feasting and joy is the best context for breakthrough. I want to tell you a story because I think it's important in this moment. And then we'll, we'll try to wrap up. Um, okay, before I say the story, let me just say, I'm not a crazy person. I, um, I'm actually a qualified doctor, would you believe? I don't practice medicine anymore. I did emergency medicine for about four years. Um, okay, so that's the background, okay. Um, a number of years ago, just, when, just before Julian and I were going to get married, um, Julian's mom got really, really sick um, to the point that she was... Um, put into intensive care. She went into an induced coma. Her body completely shut down. The night before our wedding, the doctors phoned Julian to say, um, she's going to die tonight. Please come and say goodbye to her. All the way through our wedding day, we were anticipating a call to say that she'd died in the hospital. Throughout our honeymoon, we kept phoning back to see if she was still alive or if she died. It was a crazy time. Jesus was incredibly kind. She didn't die. She's still alive today. But it was a real robbing moment for us where we'd believed that we were both in our 30s when we got married and we'd really believed like this was the moment that God was so blessing and then it all went completely wrong. And our wedding day was just, it was a blur. We were both so emotionally numb throughout the whole thing. And afterwards, we were really processing what happened. God, what did you do? What on earth was going on? It was such a disappointment. And um, a few months after our wedding day, we were at a conference in a church called Bethel in California. Um, And as part of that conference, all the delegates were sitting down in a hotel, kind of like this one, having dinner together. It was a nice meal. Everyone was behaving themselves. Someone walked past, past me, put their hand on my shoulder. As they did that, the Spirit of God... Um, 
pounced on me. There's no other word. Pounced on me and I burst out laughing. Now I'm saying not like sweet, hee 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 hee, more like ha like that, okay? I laughed so hard that I was crying while I'm shrieking hysterically with laughter. Everyone else is having their dinner. I'm starting to say to Jesus, what are you doing? What are you doing? Please make it stop. Please make it stop. Like, this is mortifying. I laughed so hard that I couldn't walk out of there. Julian had to carry me to the car. I laughed so hard that we were driving to the evening meeting. I couldn't stop crying. Uh, When we got to the church for the evening meeting, Julian had to carry me out of the car. If you've ever been to a conference at Bethel, they've got like a prayer line as you go through the front door that are like just praying for delicacies as they come into the conference. It's really lovely, except it wasn't lovely for me because I was a magnet to them and they started saying more more Lord, which is a really, really mean thing to say to someone like that. I fell on the ground because I was laughing so uncontrollably. I'd lost all ability to walk. Julian abandoned me, sitting nice. This guy right here abandoned me, found his seat somewhere, (laughs) pretending he didn't know me. I crawled towards him. I can't tell you what happened in that meeting because I howled with laughter for an hour and a half. And the first half hour, I was like, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. it." That was pretty much it. And then after that, I realized he wasn't going to pay attention to my stop it. So I said, what on earth are you doing, Jesus? He said to me, you've been in a battle and you didn't know how to fight. I'm teaching you warfare. Next time you're in a battle, this is what you are to do. You're going to get so happy in God that you start laughing at the lies of the enemy and everything will be transformed for you. And about a year after that, Julian and I were in a battle much, much worse than the first one that we'd faced. And everything was hopeless and everything was black. And we didn't know what to do. And just at the point where I'd lost all sense of belief in Jesus for our situation, I remembered what he'd taught me. And I wrote how black the situation was on a piece of paper. And I stood on that piece of paper and I put worship music on. And I worshipped and worshipped until I was able to be happy, which took a couple of hours. But I want to tell you in that moment, the verse that he turns our ashes into beauty became real for me. And everything changed in my heart. Nothing changed in my circumstance, but everything changed from that point onwards in my heart. I want to tell you, if you are in a battle, this is what you are to do. You are to get so happy in God that you're able to laugh at the lies of the enemy because that's what Psalms tells us that God does. He laughs at the lies of the enemy. You are to laugh at him and you're to find joy because joy is strength and God knows you need strength in the battle. Last one. Last thing the enemy doesn't want you to know, the father is kinder than you dare believe. See, even this evil king shows us in this moment the kindness of the Father when he extends mercy when death was the anticipated response. In Luke 4, there's this amazing moment where Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he starts speaking from the words of the prophet in Isaiah. And he says, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. And I'm just going to read the words to you. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then we're told he rolled up the scroll and he sat down. See, the astonishing thing about what Jesus did that day is not the words that he read, but the words that he didn't read. Because if you know the prophecy from Isaiah, you'll know that the end of that prophecy is not favor, it's the day of the vengeance of our God. And so in that moment, as Jesus was reading the words of the prophecy, and when he said, I have fulfilled 
this in your hearing, what he did on purpose was leave out vengeance. Why did he do that? Well, because he in himself absorbed all the vengeance of God, any ounce of punishment towards sin and death and disobedience so that there is no vengeance of God left for humanity. Jesus is the favor filled full stop of heaven. I want to tell you the Father is kinder than you dare believe. There is no moment in your life where where God is watching to see you stumble so that he can strike you for it. That's not how he operates. So often as Christians, we treat punishment and discipline in the same way, where we say God is disciplining me, but what we actually mean, the correct word in that moment is punishing me, because what we mean is I did something wrong and he is reacting to the thing that I did wrong. I want to tell you that's not discipline, that's punishment. Discipline is about empowering you for your future. Punishment is about paying you back for your, for your past. There is never a moment that you can do something wrong where God punishes you for that thing because the cross has taken all the punishment. There is never a moment. God empowers us for our future. He never deals with us according to our sin. Last verse. Psalm 23, 6 says, His goodness, surely, His goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life. The Father is so kind. His goodness and mercy is following you all of the days of your life. Surely, not maybe, not just on the good days, not on just on the obedient days, but surely his goodness and mercy is following you all of the days of your life. You know, I have two toddlers. I know what it's like to not be able to escape in any given moment. I'm an introvert at heart. There are moments where I'm like, oh my gosh, I definitely just need one second alone. So I'll run and hide in the bathroom because the door locks. And as soon as I do that, there's two pairs of hands. Mommy, let us in. My children are inescapable and I love them. (sighs) Surely his goodness and mercy follow me all of the days of my life. You cannot escape his goodness or mercy. No matter where you go, no matter how far you go, no matter how deep you get into trouble, his goodness and mercy are following you inescapably all of the days of your life. Would you stand with me for a minute? We're just going to do a couple of moments of ministry. I have no idea what time it is, sorry. We're going to do a couple of minutes of ministry. I just felt like God wanted to deal with some hearts that are hammered and bruised from the battle. And he wanted to bring his kindness, his goodness, his salve to weary hearts felt like he wanted to just rush in with his affection for you. I felt like God wanted to bring healing to hearts that are bruised and healing to hearts that have been scared to trust Holy Spirit. And even in this moment, God is recalibrating some minds about who Holy Spirit is and what he wants to do in our lives. And I felt like finally that God wanted to do something in some hearts where you know that you've been listening to the enemy's assessment of who you are and what you bring to the table. And you've kind of bought into the I'm a nothing and a nobody. What can I possibly do? 
And it may be that people have spoken those words over you, or it may be that that's something that the enemy has, and slowly but surely, you've started to agree with that assessment. And even in this moment, God wants you in this moment to reach out in faith to what He's spoken over you and to start breaking agreement with what the enemy has said. And very simply to start saying, that's not what God says. I'm not going to say yes to that anymore. I'm not going to say, yes, I'm a loser. I'm not going to say, yes, I'm so small and insignificant. I'm not gonna say, yes, what God has called me to is too big and I won't be able to do it. But rather in this moment, we get to powerfully because we are all powerful people in Christ. So we get to come into agreement with the words of God. And so if any of this makes sense to you, won't you just lift up your hands just as a sign of Jesus, I'm willing, I'm ready. (laughs) If you're hurting, just allow Holy Spirit to come and breathe life and healing over you. In the name of Jesus, I just come against disappointment. I come against offense against Holy Spirit. And I just speak healing salve of the Spirit's kindness over men and women in this room. For those of you who've been in a battle, I speak joy in place of weariness right now. In the name of Jesus, I just speak such an injection of the joy of God that it would overwhelm you even like it did to me that day. That you wouldn't even know what to do with the injection of joy that comes into your body. But that it would transform everything about how you see your situation and how you see God working all things for good. And so in the name of Jesus, we just speak the goodness and the kindness of God over every man, every woman in this place. In the name of Jesus.